Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and often in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Before we get into today's episode, I have a quick announcement to make, and that's that we are relaunching our popular Writing for Impact and Influence Science writing course. It's actually taught by yours truly, and this year's sessions will kick off on the 9th of July. Uh, the course is and always has been fully online. And one of the ideas behind it is to quickly build a small community of science writers with lots of interaction, personal feedback, and friendly communication, the kinds of things that I'm sure all of us could use a little bit more of right now. Uh, but the fundamental aim of the program is to address what we at AIBS have perceived to be a training gap in the scientific community, which is that although there's a lot of pressure on scientists to increase their public outreach and broaden the impacts of their work, there's not a lot of guidance on how exactly to do that. So in this course, we work on things like press releases, social media, uh, writing for the media, formal writing for professional audiences, including things like one-pagers and action decision memoranda. And there's also a lot of choice in the assignment, so it's really easy to tailor your work to your particular needs, really with an eye toward having you leave the course ready to volunteer to help fill some of the innumerable publishing outlets out there that are actually looking for good content. And of course, we try to keep it fun. In any case, I look forward to working with you this summer, and you can find details at io.aibs.org forward slash writing and in the link in the show notes. But moving right along, today's episode is the next in our In Their Own Words series, in which we chat with scientists who have made great contributions to their fields. Today's guest is Dr. Gregory Anderson in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Connecticut Stores. And as always with these, you can read along with the text version in the pages of Bioscience, and you'll find a link to that in the show notes. But for now, let's go to the interview. Dr. Anderson, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. I'm, uh, AIBS has been very important to me and I believe to the kind of sciences that I work with and, and delighted to do more with AIBS and to talk to you. Well, thank you very much uh, for those kind words and we'll look forward to hearing more. Uh, but just to get us started, when did you first know that you wanted to work in the life sciences? Well, there may never have been a doubt for me that um, being outside and seeing things, feeling things, possibly possibly understanding nature as a, a kid are the things that attracted me eventually as a, um, an adult, actually, well into my career. I think I recognized that uh, being outside and uh, seeing, interacting with nature was an animating principle in my life. Um, as a kid, as a Boy Scout, I, I remember one particular event hiking around my prairie-bound uh, hometown in southwestern Minnesota that a hummingbird came up and explored my red shirt. And that uh, only later in life did it stand out to me that that thing was uh, quite important and maybe emblematic of, as I'll say more about, my interest in interactions among organisms. The hummingbird did not get any reward from me, but stimulated me to think about nature, I guess, in a different sort of way. And then I was lucky as a, an older Boy Scout to be able to uh, help lead a trip from our little local hometown to the pristine wilderness, the Boundary Waters Wilderness Canoe Area that's in northern Minnesota and borders into Canada at a time when crossing borders uh, wasn't such an issue. And all of that was a, a life-changing event for me. I feel obliged to ask you a little bit more about the the boundary waters. Um, is was that at the time you know one of those setups where you'd have you know long portages of of multiple miles carrying canoes and gear? Absolutely, yeah. We went to I don't remember where the scout camp was. Maybe uh, the town in northern Minnesota that was at the edge of the boundary waters, and we packed. You could pack heavy because it was canoes, but we were obligated to crush. 22 loaves of Wonder Bread into the smallest bit we could, and that became the source of peanut butter and jelly goop for the next 10 days as we um, canoed and portaged and drank water directly off our paddles um, in stroke. We learned how to do that uh, when there wasn't Giardia in all of those lakes too, I guess. So it was um, a spectacular experience um, and very memorable. So it was really that exposure to nature, uh, you know, in the early parts of your life that that kind of 
sparked that interest? Yeah, I was outside. When I look back, I was outside as much as I could be in the summer and in the winter. I loved Midwestern blizzards and I would go out in every one of those I could. I just liked being outside. I liked adventure. I liked um, seeing um, and interacting, you know, seeing uh, organisms, I guess, not interacting with them except that hummingbird experience and handling snakes and frogs and such. So, yeah, and as I say, I think it was when I was president, not a president and representing a society in the Council of Scientific Society Presidents, CSSP, that they were running something analogous to what you're doing, but it didn't last very long of asking how people got interested in science. And it was that pretty well into my career where I reflected back that uh, on my childhood boy experiences that I always liked being outside and that um, particular experience with a hummingbird sort of catalyzed, if not crystallized, um, my understanding of how much I enjoyed being with and loved nature. And that love of nature seems to be certainly a recurring theme that we've you know, seen so far in this series. Um, moving on to other questions, what would you say is the biggest surprise of your career? Um, as with a, a couple of questions that I, I think you might ask, I have uh, a, a couple answers. The, the first one relates to the background that I told you about. Uh, we, I came from town, but farm country, but it was the uh, county seat. So it was a really, really important town of 5,000 people. It was Lake Wolvagon. I just didn't know it until I grew up. Um, and... <laughs> finally figuring out that the world was bigger than Pipestone, Minnesota, or bigger than Minnesota, or bigger than the U.S., bigger than North America. And then for me, fortunately, getting to work um, in places around the whole globe uh, to experience the kind of diversity from northern forests to tropical forests, from eventually from deserts to rainforests, mountain glacial lakes, which I loved, uh, to uh, not for research, but for pleasure snorkeling in shallow reefs uh, was a, uh, an amazing set of experiences in my life. And being able to um, talk about those experiences, being able to transmit them to students as a teacher, and then being a somewhat clever person, being able to identify research questions that forced me back into those areas were all pleasant surprises in my life. Yeah, I noted in looking over uh, your work over your career that I, I would have suspected, frankly, that you disliked those Midwestern blizzards because you've, you've spent so much time in, in tropical areas. But uh, is your interest in, in being outdoors in nature just extremely broad? It's broad, but you're right. Um, I don't want to live in southwestern Minnesota. <laughs> Uh, the, the the natural native prairie, the bits of it are le that are left in here and there, in Kansas, for instance, the Kansa Prairie, um, are really impressive places as well. But in grad school, uh, when I was a grad student at Indiana University, um, I got to go to the Organization for Tropical Studies sponsored course in Costa Rica called Tropical Ecology and Ecological Approach, and that changed my life in a way that that hummingbird or that canoeing experience changed my life. I was at the time I went on that OTS course working on uh, temperate um, research. I'd already started a temperate PhD project. And when I came back, my advisor was not unhappy because he was a tropical um, oriented biologist as well uh, to hear that I was done with that project and wanted to explore with him options for works, work in the tropics. So um, the, the, the second element that was a surprise in my career, and I, I don't mean to redirect if you, if you had other questions, was discovering what a surprise it was to me, and it's a surprise that it was a surprise, uh, how much energy I would derive and how much I'd learn from interacting with my students over the decades. So as many um, teachers, I think, would say they learn as much from the students that they work with as they teach them. And that was certainly the case for me as well. But I hadn't expected that to be a source of 
um, learning in the way that it was. And, and I guess speaking of you know cross career type questions, what's the biggest difference between the way science is conducted now and the way that it was when you first entered the field? Uh, I think uh, the thing that's when I think about that, I think the thing that's changed most is the massive amount of data that um, one is gathered as a result of molecular approaches, the way in which those data are handled by incredibly complex um, computer programs, the, the massive data sets and the massive computer programs that deal with them, and how that's led to uh, almost the absence of individually driven research and toward team, large team, in fact, um, based research. And with that, the associated or consequent rate of publication has gone up. The rates of expectation or the expectation of publication and then just the rate of publication because almost nothing, as you know from being involved with bioscience, where there are many authors to most papers, um, is the way things work now, as opposed to individual or maybe co-authored papers in the past. It sounds like there is potential for that to be both a more challenging and perhaps a, a less challenging in other ways type of situation. What's what's your feeling about it? You know, how does it affected the work that you do? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a good question. It's more challenging um, because uh, uh, more challenging and uh, provides more opportunities and that you have to figure out what the intersections are between your and your collaborators' interests and what you bring to the research. And then uh, turning that coin over, um, the great benefit that derives from being able to collaborate and thus different or perhaps deeper, at least different questions being uh, raised as a result of very different perspectives bring, being brought to the work. And as I'll say in response to uh, one of the other questions you ask about later, I like to work with people and am, stimul and am stimulated with, uh, by working with people. And so the collaboration has been good for me in that context as well, perhaps as I alluded to with students. So you're not entirely wistful for the lone principal investigator driven, you know, type of work that we at least envision was historically practiced. Yeah, no, not entirely wistful. I think it is too bad that that is almost impossible to do now um, because of the demands of, of funding agencies for multidisciplinary um, research in almost all contexts. Um, so it's too bad that there isn't a space for that as well, but I think it, it's uh, harder to find that space now. So those would be cases in which, you know, um, someone simply had a, a peculiar research interest and really wanted to spend a lot of time pursuing it. That would be more difficult now because, you know, you have to you know, meet the strictures of your funding agencies and universities and those types of folks. Yeah. Yeah. And expectations from journals about the multidisciplinary um, nature of publications and that sort of thing as well. And looking at another sort of you know collaborative element of a scientific career, um, how have professional societies played a role in your career? It, I, I think it would be hard to underestimate uh, the role that they've played. Uh, as I alluded to, I think, um, in a response just a moment ago, I'm a people person and discovered pretty early in my life that I get personal reward from participating in helping support others and also organizations that have pr promoted the greater good like AIBS and other professional societies. Um, and though all, I guess all through my career, actually participation in a number of professional societies uh, has allowed me to interact with and make new friends with people outside of the narrower circle that my particular research would have defined this profession uh, this participation professional participation has broadened me in dramatic ways and it's also also in uh, enriched my personal life so I've appreciated that a lot uh, 
Yeah, and that's and that's something you know that I've you know often thought about is the fact that uh, memberships are harder to convince people to sign up for these days, uh, which I think is a, you know a surprise to no one. But at the same time, they seem to foster uh, the sorts of collaboration that are even more valuable in in today's you know scientific practice. Yeah. Yes, and in addition, the the face to face contact that our electronic world, as you and I are exemplifying right now. Um, defines most of what we do. The meetings, professional societies absolutely promote people getting together to talk about their common research and their common interests, their common goals, their common purposes, their hopes for their society and their profession and their family. Yeah, there's there's an energy that happens when people discuss things uh, together in the same place that is, you know, kind of hard to recreate over an email chain. Absolutely. Yeah. What would you say was your most challenging day on the job? Oh, let's see. I have, I think, two responses there. One is a, a, a personal research challenging day. <clears throat> I was, uh, and I'll describe that first, and then I'll talk about an AIBS um, challenge, um, a, a minor one. Uh, I was working or have been working, not so much right now in this particular instance, particular direction, working with a large, multi-country, multi-talented group of people uh, on remote, remote parts of a very remote island complex, the Juan Fernandez or Robinson Crusoe Islands, where we were exploring for endemic plants, 70% of the plants on that island system, that archipelago, are found no other place. Um, and working in a place where very few people um, have been in parts of the island where you could actually imagine you might have been the only one that had been there. But it's not true, but it felt like that. That was amazingly exhilarating all by itself. Um, during that work, we were well into one of the, the trips into the middle part of the island. Having been taken by boats to a place, we went on end and then we were to circle into the highland areas and come back to where the boats were. But in the middle of the day, we confronted, confronted what uh, amounted to a difficulty. We had to pass over a, a narrow spot, a knife edge. It wasn't that sharp, but it was a narrow spot with some drop off on each side. And one of our crew just couldn't do it. Uh, he was deathly afraid of heights in that context. And it was overwhelming. So we had to make a turn and go a different um, unplanned direction, a different route in the island that led us to a place to board the boats in a different spot than the one we'd been dropped off. And that choice, we didn't know at the time, turned out to have some highly unintended consequences because that other side of the island was subject that day to a very strong stormy wind with high waves uh, that were crashing in. And the boats that uh, dropped, took us, and then were flown to come around and pick us up. Our large, you might think of them as large rowboats, they're very large rowboats that had um, small inboard motors in them, but they were open, um, open body boats. And when they got there, uh, they could not land, but they could come up to the edge of where the water met the land, which wasn't a shore, but it was some um, a cliff in essence, just about a meter and a half, you know, two, three feet, four feet between the edge of the cliff and the water. And the Chilean boatmasters would be out and waving and yelling to their comrades that they were coming in and somebody should get ready. And as the boat got close enough, bouncing up and down to this cliff edge, they would yell salto or saltaya, which means jump now. And one person would jump in and they would back off as the waves crashed and then another one and another one. And one of our persons, a, a student uh, that had been an undergrad student had been brought along, uh, missed the boat and fell into the, the ocean and actually was quite close to being run into by the boat body, but was rescued and loaded in. And then we were all in these boats and had to deal with very heavy seas until we got around to the lee side of the island. It was thrilling, uh, to say the least, and 
uh, as I tell the story, it, it is video projecting onto my screen because it was burned into our, our memory. Very interesting and exciting. That sounds quite harrowing. I hope the other story wasn't quite as life-threatening. Well, the other story, a challenging day in AIBS, um, um, isn't uh, really uh, anything like the other story in terms of being you know, life-threatening, but it was sort of uh, an interesting career experience. Um, uh, one of the jobs as past president in, in those days, and maybe still is, was finding ca candidates for future elections. Um, I had had the pleasure of um, meeting and probably helping to invite or inviting the uh, person who discovered acid rain in North America, Gene Likens, who's also a former president of AIBS and now a personal good friend, um, uh, to speak at an AIBS meeting. And I thought of him as a, uh, a future president. So I suggested that name to some of my colleagues as we were talking, and they all said, oh, that's a great idea. Why don't you talk to Gene? And so I did. I spoke to Gene, ever the gentleman who is also very committed to science, society, management, and the greater good in that context, said that he was inclined to consider that position, but that I needed to speak to his spouse, uh, Phyllis, uh, to see what she thought of it. I was pretty confident as a Boy Scout, I sold the most Minnesota Centennial booklets to our townspeople because I thought it was a good product and they did too. So I thought, you know, I might be able to sell the idea to Phyllis and uh, that it was a pretty good organization to um, promote. So I had the pleasure of meeting her who became a good friend later as well and made my pitch for AIBS. And I think Phyllis, I thought Phyllis was convinced Gene accepted the form, formal offer that was made later on. Only recently, now that I've gotten to know Gene uh, very well and was telling him the story of my success and talking him into the presidency, did Gene tell me that I had failed to convince Phyllis. Oh, no. She knew how busy Gene was, and she kept track of those things and, and contributed immensely to his career in that, those many ways how many books and papers and field projects he had and just didn't think that he had time to do it. So she recommended against it. And I think Gene probably was convinced less by me than by the number of other very strong ecological colleagues who've been part of and are still are part of AIBS to think that it was a good idea. And I'm sure glad that he did. So, yeah, as are we. Yeah, as are we. Yeah, it was a challenge, but uh, a fun one. I hope I have the chance to ask him about that someday. Yes, yes, yeah. Well, we'll see if the story is the same. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what was your best day on the job? Uh, let's see. Maybe I'll do a two-part answer to that. It, in terms of research, it, it isn't a day, but it's the kind of day, the, the aha moments when an explanation not previously tenable, I'll give you a specific example, explain some system um, that not people hadn't considered before. I discovered a, a sexual system, separate sexes in plant biology, it's called diece, uh, in a genus, not in general, I didn't discover it, but in a genus, the genus Solanum, the potato and tomato genus, where diece, that separate sexes stuff, contradicted, uh, was contradicted by the morphological evidence from the flowers. The flowers are hermaphroditic and don't look like a male or a female, but through experimentation and erecting hypotheses and testing them in various ways, detailed experiments helped us show that the function of some of those flowers that we can now recognize until you in publications, how to tell the male from the female uh, actually exemplify a cryptic or a hidden system of separate sexes where morphology is absolutely, absolutely indicates that they're hermaphroditic flowers. So that's the, the research best day on the job. And a, a personal best day, I guess, is um, associated with an a award and a surprise. I tend not to like surprises, but um, uh, friends, colleagues, students were present for uh, what I thought would be a small 
uh, evening obligation, um, arranging some furniture for a university event the next day in a building. So I went to the site to um, do that job with them in a dark room. And in that dark room, uh, as my wife Mona and I entered, we heard the um, booming, powerful, and sonorous voice of Kent Holzinger, another AIBS, pres AIBS president, proclaiming that I had won some university distinguished professor award. And all the lights went on, and there were, um, oh, I don't know, 100 people present. And it was um, a, a big surprise. and a best day, I would have to say. Yeah, it sounds incredibly exciting. It was fun. Yeah. 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 Um, so you may have already covered this, but do you have a favorite story from your time working with AIBS? Uh, I do. And there's another question that you asked where I think it might be better to address that. And that was the event from my career that um, I think uh, might be most remembered into the future. Um, and I could address it here or there, whichever place you think is better. Let's go ahead and talk about it right now. Okay. Um, this is something I hope that is important, not only to me, but um, others. I, I tend to think of it, I suppose, as one does, because I was involved with it as an inflection point in the uh, history of AIBS. It was the first ever or one of the fir first ever in modern times at least of a meeting of the presidents and it, we called it the president's summit with the apostrophe after the s that is it was by the not for the presidents we engaged the presidents of something like uh, close to 60 of the uh, organizations associated with aibs in a summit meeting in November of 1999 in uh, a conference center in Virginia um, called Airly, so that the things we came up with appropriately, alliteratively, are called the Airly Accords. AIBS has had small individual membership, and I suspect still has small individual membership, but always a very large collective membership when all the members that are associated with the many societies are also associated with AIBS. Not too different in that context as an umbrella organization as the American Institute of Physics that has, I don't know, 100,000 members or something, or the big one, the Council of Scientific Society Presidents, which is a council with scientific society presidents that together represents probably a million individuals, but not one of them is a member of CSSP as an individual. So that umbrella for AIBS, a part of AIBS that I always very much appreciated, um, became much larger at that early meeting. I happened to be president and to begin the meeting, I brought an, um, to the opening of the meeting, I brought a little rain umbrella and held that up and said, this is what we are. And at the end of the meeting, which is jumping ahead of where I'll be in just a moment, we got a large party umbrella and held that over the head of heads of many of us to show what we hoped would represent the umbrella nature of AIBS's responsibilities into the future. But about it took us about two years of preparation of of presidents and especially working with the executive director Richard O'Grady, which was a great pleasure. Many staff at AIBS, the AIBS board with lots and lots of different people. And then the presidents of that nearly 60 member organizations that got together for that 50th annual meeting uh, to produce those early accords. We had a lot of notable speakers in our fields, uh, including for example, people that could help us address the value of working together for many uh, hoped for goals. People like Rita Caldwell, um, a former AIBS president, who at the time was the head of NSF. Uh, Ed Wilson, uh, what many of us might think of as the leading scientist and advocate, advocate for interactions, integrative biology, studying plants and animals together. Somebody named Jules Lapitis, who at that time was the head of the Council of Graduate Schools for the US. 
somebody named Marty Apple, who at that time and maybe still is remembered as the most um, significant head of the Council of Scientific Society presidents. Those people and many others, Diana Wall, that you and I have talked about, were uh, speakers, um, were those that helped the breakout groups of the member societies work together to figure out how we could be even better um, as a unit working together than we could be as individual societies and how the AIBS umbrella could help us in such important ways to promote public policy, something I think we probably recognize today as more important than ever, the public promotion of science, to promote research funding in ways individual societies can, uh, cannot, to work with our colleagues in government offices in Washington to promote education and also to promote uh, careers in biology, all in ways that the individual societies couldn't do it. It was a, a demanding, exciting, invigorating, and I hope will be, continue to be re, uh, viewed um, into the future as a successful event promoting the, the combined um, agendas and the recognition that that big umbrella that organizations like, but organizations specifically as um, AIBS does, represents um, all of us in ways that we are not well represented individually. Yeah, I recall a viewpoint that you wrote a couple of years after uh, that early meeting, you know, mentioning that the, the the medical sciences were very good at this sort of outreach and, and public policy interaction, but the organismal sciences still had some work to do. Um, do you think that's still the case? Uh, I, uh, I think it's, uh, I hope it's less the case. I think it's still the case. I think medical sciences in particular, and possibly um, the FASEB um, molecular biology groups are um, supported um, through um, industry and business connections of some of their members, like the, say, the American Chemical Society, um, which has 160,000 members, are supported in ways that uh, an umbrella like AIBS is not and cannot be. So I think we can't be them. But there are things that they do that we can emulate um, and our societies, our individuals, individual societies and individual members of those societies uh, will benefit from. So I think there is that difference and disparity and I don't, uh, a difference. I, I suppose a disparity implies that it's not fair, but it's a fact, it's not a matter of fairness. And, and certainly those are still things that, you know, uh, we at AIBS are considering and thinking about, you know, to this very day. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting to hear sort of the origin of that thinking, at least within the organization, uh, you know, coming from that time when you were president and it was the 50th anniversary of the organization and NSF too, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So what's the funniest single thing that's happened in your career? Oh, let's see. Um, I'm trying... I have notes about that. Just a second. Sure, absolutely. And I'll interject in the meantime that this is a question uh, that typically gets an answer of, uh, I have a great funny thing that I can't tell you. Yeah, oh, that's true. But here's one that I can tell you. Uh, I'm an I'm an action-oriented person, and thus things get done. Things get sent out. Sometimes they get done more quickly than is sometimes wise, sometimes without the necessary or appropriate rereading or reflection. And the best example of that is the time when I was department head of uh, ecology and evolutionary biology. Um, I attached the wrong document, which happened more than once, but this time was especially important because I sent to about 100 people all of my passwords. Uh, so the oh, faculty, no. the staff, and the students, I, my passwords are never lost again because I just had to write to one of our grad students and asked them for my passwords. So that was, it's funny on reflection. And, and I imagine the fact that your uh, bank accounts, you know, uh, stayed whole would be a, a signal that, um, that all of those people were, you know, very happy to be overseen by you. The, yeah, that's right. They're good people. Absolutely. Um, 
Have you had any particularly frightening or intimidating things that have happened in your professional career? Uh, you know, perhaps other than trying to leap into a, a swaying boat, you know, cliffside uh, of an island. Uh, I think probably uh, that's the most memorable. But also on the uh, Juan Fernandez, I was out on my own, um, feeling like uh, the sound of music. You know, the hills are alive with the sound of music because I was overseeing this. Not vast landscape, but this small island landscape with the Pacific Ocean, the cold Pacific Ocean, because it's cold at that place, that's far south, um, and beautiful endemic island vegetation. And interestingly, once again, hummingbirds that were coming up to me, because the Juan Fernandez Islands have um, two species of hummingbirds, one that's only found there and another one also found on the continent, but they evolved with no predators. And so they're not afraid, they are not afraid of vertebrates. So, you know, interacting with nature and, and the hummingbirds and all of that. And I was looking up instead of down. And I was along one of those cliff edges that was about a four inch wide trail. And I looked up instead of down and I fell head over heels over this cliff edge, fortunately there, and it was literally head over heels, uh, there were invasive plants at that level, including a uh, raspberry that had a trunk of about, uh, I say, would say two inches in diameter. So it didn't have many prickles because it was a big woody trunk that I grabbed about eight or 10 feet down and I would not have fallen to the ocean. It's not that kind of cliff, but I would have fallen quite a ways onto rocks and that sort of thing. So I was saved in this wonderful 70% endemic, semi-pristine environment by an invasive plant. So one of the rare upsides of, uh, of an invasive species. Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. So what's what's communication like when you're on you know one of those remote islands? Do you have a satellite phone? I, I'm a, a backcountry hiker and I'm usually by myself and I, I always wonder, you know, what exactly would happen to me if I were to break my ankle or something like that? Yeah, it's changed dramatically from the first times I went there, which were which was a, um, just an amazing experience. The only connection, there are people that live in one part of the island because there are about 400 people that work uh, in between forestry. They don't harvest the forest. They protect this endemic forest. And harvesting um, non-unclawed, uh, that is, they don't have large claws, lobsters that are worth $100 if you get them back to Santiago or Rio de Janeiro. So there are some people there. And as a result, there's a small military base by the Chilean military. And in this base are the people who got the bad assignment because there is no um, female population that you know they might like to get to know. There are females there, but they're not interested in those 18-year-old kids. The only connection back to um, the mainland, which is South America, was by Navy radio. And if you wanted to call home, me to call back to my wife and, and two young daughters, I had to go to the Navy base and talk to an 18-year-old sailor who would try to get a line back to Santiago, who would then connect with a telephone to the US. So you had a, a scratchy, squeaky set of calls, uh, a set of connections that you could get out. So you did not want to get hurt. You didn't want to get sick. Helicopter, uh, the Juan Fernandez are too far for helicopters to fly. The distance is too great for one flight and the airstrip is um, for small propeller planes. So there wouldn't be an easy way to get out. That's all changed, I think. And I think with satellite phones, last time I was there, there was a payphone actually down by the dock, the dock in the bay where the boat comes in that you could actually, with the right number of numbers, call the United States. So, so it was scary in the beginning and is less so now, less remote, perhaps a little less exciting. Yeah, I can imagine, although that sort of excitement would be uh, something for which I would have a rather limited appetite because uh, yes. if something happens, you're, you're really quite a bit on your own there. You're really quite a bit on your own, absolutely. It, it made it more exciting, but it also made it a little bit more scary. Have you been able to get out to do field work every year or has that or have there been you know long breaks? Um, I was a 
an administrator, both in the department here for almost 16 years. And then I was a interim vice provost for research and dean of the grad school. But even when I did those things, I got into the field at least every uh, two years, if not every year, and have continued to do that. I retired in terms of pay. People haven't been paying me other than retirement pay 10 years ago. Um, but I continue to work in the department. I'm fortunate to be in, in a building where not everybody wants the space because it's a pretty old one. Um, so I have some space and I do research in the greenhouse. And that research is based on uh, getting into the field to collect plants, to gather field data. But I augment that and back it up by experiments in the greenhouse with living plants doing hybridizations. I've uh, had a colony of um, bumblebees that have been part of my research so we can see how bees interact with flowers and how they interact with flowers that have been previously visited by bees and those that have not to determine how flowers might provide a signal to tell bees to go to another flower in order to be a, a mechanism to promote outcrossing. So long answer to say, I get into the field um, quite a bit yet. Well, that sounds like interesting, you know, lab work as it were, but what kind of things do you do in the field itself? You know, this is something that you know, I think I, as a, not a biologist, you know, don't really have a lot of a view to, and I suspect many of our listeners and readers don't either. Um, you know, what, what's it like? Are you, you know, you're waking up in the morning and you go out and are you collecting samples primarily? Are you looking for something in particular? Um, you know, how does that work sort of go? Um, my my part of the these collaborative studies that we've done on the Juan Fernandez and uh, I continue and not on a whole on the Juan Fernandez we have studied the whole flora because there are 150 of 50 native plants but I also work in the uh, Car some Caribbean islands and in the Canary Islands there the floras are much larger so I've concentrated on understanding the sexual system especially the separate sexes sexual system, diece, as it intersects with being a good island species. Um, and that encompasses two parts, being a good colonizer, getting there, and then being, being able to exist um, with just a few colonists, and then being a competitive um, species in terms of adaptation or persistence. And so what my part of those collaborations is, is looking at the nature of the breeding system and the sexual systems. So I concentrate on the, the floral systems and we do experiments in the field. One, we make observations of what the pollinators are, what are, not everything that comes to a flower is a pollinator. So we first determine what are pollinators and what are incidental visitors. And then we determine what pollinators do um, what leads them from one flower to another flower, what tricks the flowers have up their evolutionary sleeves in order to promote the bees or whatever the visitors are to do things that are most effective at um, promoting pollination. Um, and then some difficult in that they require uh, experimental work on the same plants, uh, three visits in essence, to determine experiments to determine compatibility. So we find plants in flower, we remove all the open flowers, we put bags on, we come back in a few days, the flowers that have opened in the bags, a sample of those, we do hand pollinations, transferring the pollen from stamens to the uh, receptive female parts, the stigmas of the same flowers, flowers on different plants to determine self-crossing self ability or out-crossing ability, bag them back up and then come back in a few more days to harvest them, bring them back to the lab and examine them for the growth of the pollen tubes that result in a successful cross that is not inhibited genetically by factors that promote outcrossing. So we're able to determine the so-called breeding system of the plant, whether it's capable of self-breeding or prevents self-breeding. And then our other observations of the development of the flowers and subsequently bringing them back and working with them over years sometimes in the greenhouses, 
We understand the sexual system, like the cryptic one that I described earlier of separate sexes, the dioecious, or uh, there, there are a bunch of other names that scientists can use that will impress non-scientists that we know a lot about different sexual systems. So separate sexes. So yeah, it's really fun to get out in the field and and do those things and make those observations, conduct those experiments and work with local scientists. That's another big advantage. Yeah, and, and thank you for pulling back the curtain on that, because it's something that, you know, I think that a lot of us who uh, primarily interact with science through, you know, reading articles and things like that don't really get to see very often. Uh, so, so thank you for shining that light. Yeah. On it. Yeah. Um, have we, I, we may have already covered this question. Um, the, what are you working on right now question? Yeah, no, I, I, what I'm working on right now is those same sexual systems. I, I think it would, it might be interesting to listeners to know that when we did those studies on the Juan Fernandez, where we could look at a good portion of that native flora, the invasive flora has about as many species as the native, so another 150 or more. We didn't study those, but of the native species, a really very interesting thing that we found that was hard to accept and might be hard to accept by those who just read it is that the flowers on those islands are not pollinated by bees, moths, butterflies, flies. Um, they are pollinated by hummingbirds, some uh, less than 20%. But those other groups of normal pollinators are not present on the Juan Fernandez or Robinson Crusoe Islands. So things that look like they should be bee pollinated or butterfly pollinated are in fact either self-pollinated or in many cases, they're wind pollinated. And that goes against all of our thinking about wind pollinated things because wind pollinated things are like golden rock, like um, uh, ragweed or many of our spring trees with tiny little green flowers with millions of pollen grains that are dry. And these plants on the Juan Fernandez might have um, large, ish or sometimes large but large-ish colored flowers and they might even have nectar but there are no native pollinators other than the hummingbirds so through a series of years and field you know, several field trips of work there we determined that this flora previously thought of by previous visitors to be bee pollinated or bumblebee uh, bumblebee or butterfly or moth or fly pollinated is wind pollinated and hummingbird pollinated. That's fascinating. So they've they've adapted to wind pollination, but have maintained the, you know, the at least the the morphological trappings of, um, you know, an insect pollinated plant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They're they're also called the Robinson Crusoe Islands because in fact, a sailor, uh, a horrible, crude, rude person was put off an English sailing boat at his demand, you know, captain put me off at the next island, but interject a lot of profanity into that statement. And the captain did. That person lived there for four years and four months and eventually was uh, rescued because he decided he'd rather get off the island than stay there all by his lonely self. When he went back to England, the newspapers wrote about him and Daniel Defoe read about this person and glorified and transmuted that story into this wonderful person, Robinson Crusoe, and uh, his colleague, uh, Friday, um, who were wonderful people. So the name Robinson Crusoe was applied to those islands. All of that is a long story to say the flora also makes do. The flora in the Robinson Crusoe Islands looks like it should be pollinated by bees, butterflies, moths, flies. It's pollinated by hummingbirds and wind. So it's in a sense a Robinson Crusoe flora making do with what it has, which is a lot of wind. That's a fascinating story and, and you know, it speaks well to, you know, the, the way that life does find a way. Um, yeah, yeah. If you were entering grad school today, uh, what would you do differently? Would you study anything different? Would you, uh, you know, pursue the same sorts of interests? Would there be any major shifts? Um, you had told me you were going to ask that question, and I thought a lot about that. And I think, I don't know, I don't think I would do much different. Um, not that what I do is the most important thing. I think many 
of my colleagues interviewed for the same thing are doing much more important things. But with time and reflection, I think that I understand what I like and what I really get a great deal of um, positive feedback from and pleasure doing is studying the interactions of organisms and reciprocal evolution of inter interacting groups. That began early in my career. I was directed by a, a wonderful PhD advisor, the guy who told me about the tropics in Indiana to work on economic plants. And so the interaction was between people and the evolution of domesticated plants. And I'm still interested in that process, the impact of people on plants and the equally or perhaps more important impact of domesticated plants on the evolution of people. And then the other set of interactions I've talked a lot about, and that is pollination, interaction of animal groups and plants or the wind and plants and sexual systems or breeding systems, self-incompatibility, the separation of sexes system. Um, all of that um, is very exciting to me. And I think if I came back to grad school today, uh, I would be wise to give myself advice to study those things because I get a great deal of pleasure from them. Well, that's very fortunate. And it sounds like such a, a very broad variety of topics that would uh, you know, uh, be enough to fill many careers. And, well, let me say one other thing in that context as well. In terms of teaching, um, a collaborative seminar that, in fact, Gene Likens, who's at uh, the University of Connecticut in the Falls, this business with Gene Likens has developed at many levels, as you can hear from the, uh, my attempts to get him to be president in the past. Uh, Gene and I and some other people offer a seminar called Nature, Science, and Society aimed at um, undergrads, grads, faculty, staff, uh, we have some um, towns persons that come where we talk about science in a way that it can be understood by the general public and talk about the importance of communicating science to the general public, um, the importance of understanding things like climate change, that we don't talk about whether climate change exists. We talk about how do we deal with it. Um, and that seminar has taught me how important I think it is to recognize that everyone being trained, including me as a new grad student, if I were to come now, needs to know how to communicate uh, with the, their science, needs to know how to translate it and communicate it to the general public in very effective means. And I couldn't possibly agree more. And that's a, I think that's a good note to leave it on. Uh, Dr. Anderson, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh my gosh, it's been a pleasure. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for the good work for AIBS. And thank you. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.